Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. As for the rest appeal, it issues from the rancor of a villain, a recreant and most degenerate traitor, which in myself I boldly will defend, and interchangeably hold down my gauge upon this overweening traitor's foot. To prove myself a loyal gentleman, even in the best blood chambered in his bosom, in haste whereof, most heartily I pray, your highness to assign our trial day. Wrath kindled gentlemen be ruled by me. Let's purge this collar without letting blood. This we prescribe, though no physician. Deep malice makes too deep incision. Forget, forgive, conclude and be agreed. Our doctors say this is no time to bleed. <laughs> And welcome to The Play's The Thing. That was from the opening scene of the opening act of Richard II, one of William Shakespeare's history plays. The two voices that you heard were Thomas Mowbray complaining against Henry Bolingbroke in the court of Richard II. And that second voice that you heard was that of the king, Richard II, who was played by David Tennant. My name is Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. And we are so delighted that you would join us for this opening episode of Richard II. Heidi, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. This is so fun. I love having the like the full amount of contributors, but there's something special about a one-on-one conversation, especially about I Shakespeare. I agree. And um, you and I have a lot of a lot of thoughts about Richard II. Mm. Uh, Heidi, I, I just want to mention, kind of, as we get started. I like to sometimes time capsule these podcasts because, you know, we're kind of assuming that people will not listen to, um, people will treat these podcasts hopefully as resources for teaching, Mm -hmm. for um, self-education. And you and I are both Americans. We live on kind of opposite sides of this big continent of North America. And we are two days after our presidential election. 
And as far as I know, as of the recording of this podcast, we still are not quite sure who's going to be the president of the United States, whether we're going to have a new president or whether we're going to have um, the, uh, Donald Trump is going to be our president for another four years. And, and I, I think it's pertinent to mention, not just because it's the kind of date and time that we're living in, but also because if William Shakespeare is concerned with any theme or any metaphor or any kind of like general crisis in human affairs, it is the nature of kingly or supreme power. Absolutely. He is obsessed, Heidi. He is, he is obsessed. The, the problem of succession, right? As Andrew Kern and I'm sure many other great thinkers have said, that the problem of succession is the problem of human history. And man, I think Shakespeare would write a really good play about this particular year in the life of the United States and the problem of succession. I, that's exactly right. When I think about the United States history, you know, we've never had. I'm going to frame this very carefully. We've never had a bloody succession problem. Not yet. Um, That's true. And that is. I'd like to keep it that way. (laughs) It would be so great to keep it that way. And in the history of human affairs, that is beyond rare. It is incredibly rare to have gone through as many changes of leadership as we've gone through and not have the military get involved, not have a poisoning, not have um, a bloody triumph over a dead body. It's just a miracle. But when we visit Richard II, (laughs) we are going to explore all of the um, bloodiness associated with keeping a tight grip on supreme power. Yep, That's going to be a major, major, it's going to be the central plot point of this play. What is Richard, what has Richard II done to preserve power and what is going to happen to him when he meets um, a threat who is capable of overpowering him. Right. Right. Um, Heidi, do you remember the first time that you, how acquainted are you with this play? Um, Have you seen a production of it live? Have you seen I've uh, never seen, I've never seen a production of this play live. Uh, I, I'm a huge advocate for this play. I I love this play. This is in my top five Shakespeare plays. I love this play. And I did not know that. It is, I think, shamefully unknown. Um, and when I say shamefully, I don't blame the audience. It's, you know, this this is this play should be much more better known, much more discussed, especially I think in classrooms. I think this is, in my opinion, I think this is along with Romeo and Juliet, this is one of the most discussable plays in Shakespeare. It's very, there's some very easy dichotomies to dig into some some contrasts that say this or this, which I think is uh, typical of Shakespeare's history plays when he kind of has this counterbalance of power consistently throughout the plays, there's two sides and they're vying for supremacy and they represent two ways of thinking about the world. And um, so in some ways, this is a very easy play to understand, Mm. uh, but, but it is a hard play, I think, to take a stand on because he does such a beautiful job of counterbalancing the points of view in this play. And I, I and for that reason, I think this should be taught in high schools all over. 
the world. I, I really, I'm a huge advocate for teaching this play. When Sarah Jane and I discussed the play Coriolanus, hmm. we had a similar feeling about Coriolanus that it sounds like you do why about isn't that Richard. Play more well known. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, Sarah Jane and I hypothesized about it a lot. Um, in fact, when, when before Sarah Jane and I started discussing Coriolanus, I did a little straw poll, and I and I wish I had been insightful enough to kind of do a straw poll on the Close Reads Facebook page. By the way, if you're a listener and you kind of want to plug into this conversation and you've got a Facebook account, um, find Close Reads, the Close Reads discussion page and join the Close Reads discussion page because there's always conversation going on about the book that we're discussing as part of the flagship show, which is called Close Reads, or the play that we're discussing as part of this podcast. Uh, the plays, the thing, both of those are hosted through the Searcy podcast network. But if you want to join the conversation, um, and, you know, recommend, uh, essays or video productions of the play, please, by all means, join, join us and, um, be part of the conversation. I, when, before we did Coriolanus, did a straw poll on the Close Reads Facebook page asking people how familiar they were with Coriolanus. And I think my final tally was 90% of the people who um, chimed in had never heard of, had, had never seen a production of Coriolanus and had never read the play, like 90%. And these are an educated erudite group that, mm-hmm. that you know, I was polling. So that really surprised me. What do you think that number would be, Heidi, for Richard II? What percentage of I bet it's probably the readers? same. And we should I do it because we're too. a couple we're a couple weeks out from this going up. So I or maybe a week or so. Anyway, I think you should do it. Uh, okay. I'd be really curious about that. It's not a very well-known play. Um and I think it should be better known. So I'd, I'm, I'm excited about bringing it to the attention of close readers and then hearing feedback from either new readers or people who are familiar and already have formulated their thoughts on it. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm a huge fan of the history plays. It's kind of one of the weird, they're, they're like my favorite. I love the are history really? plays. Yeah, I love them. I'm I, I'm like obsessed with history plays. I get most excited about it's what I want to write about and talk about. So get get ready for my my hyper voice for the next few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, I've got a question that I'm going to ask you now. I'm going to provide an interlude and I'm going to let you think about the answer why I kind of provide a little bit of a historical interlude about the play. Uh, my question is, you mentioned there are some dichotomies within the play that students can really kind of mm. um, line up on either side. I want to ask you in a second what those kind of what those dichotomies are. What are mm-hmm. the warring themes or values? Um, right now, the, let's just place Richard II the play a little bit. Okay, so it is an early play written in Shakespeare's playwriting career. It happens relatively early, and I think you'll be really interested in this, Heidi. It's the first of a historical. Tetralogy. I don't think I've ever said that word before, but the first of a four-part historical series. The four plays are Richard the First, excuse me, excuse me. Richard the Second is the first of the four parts. The second play is Henry the Fourth, Part One, then Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and then 
the concluding play is Henry V. Okay, so just to kind of help readers, um, if you are familiar with Henry IV, well, Henry IV is in the play that we're discussing under a different name. The name is Bolingbroke. So he is um, going to be part of this opening scene debate with a guy named Mowbray. And Mowbray and Bolingbroke, soon to be Henry IV, once he becomes, you know, once he's crowned, they are in a dispute. Each are accusing each other of crimes. And our opening scene is Richard II called to kind of adjudicate between the two of them. Okay. That opening scene, Heidi, is can, it can, there's a lot of different voices. There's tons of kind of historical background that the audience is assumed to know. We, as Americans living 600 years after the fact, probably don't know that history the way the original listeners, Shakespeare's original audience would know. So we're going to go slowly today through, especially the opening scene, to make sure that we're kind of like all laced up about with what we need to know, with who our main characters are, et cetera, et cetera. I now want to give you an opportunity to ask that question about what are what is like the the, the the dichotomy or dichotomies that you see that students might find themselves lining up behind? What's it what's at yeah. stake here? Right. Uh, there's there's a lot at stake. This is a play about deposing a king. There's a lot at a lot at stake here. Um, and so we have and, and as you said, the opening scene is extremely complex, and I'm sure we'll we'll delve right into it uh, here in a minute. Um, a lot of what students, what readers and audience members do in a play like this, and this is why I think I love the history play so much, is that there's multiple, many, many and various and sundry and several ways to interpret uh, the action in a history play. Um, there's a, there's a contemplation, there's a contemplative aspect to the history plays that are, that's very different from the comedies and the tragedies. The comedies have, uh, they're very complex, they're fun, usually they have, uh, a lot of serious, uh, meditations and questions about the nature of love and family and tradition embedded within them, but you can take them at face value. Um, and then the tragedies have a moral arc to them. Uh, they're, they, they take a, a character with, uh, a, you know, the fatal flaw uh, kind of thing. And then they kind of watch that character experience a rise and fall. Uh, and then the society has to be reordered upon the fall of the character and the stage littered with dead bodies. Um, so there's this kind of moral trajectory to it that's leading towards an inevitable end. The history plays are a little different. Yeah. If you know history, you know yeah. how it's going to end, right? This ends with, I mean, this is no spoiler. It ends with Richard off the throne, Bolingbroke on the on the throne, and then that leads to Henry the Fourth, Part One. Yep. Right. Um, and so this is a play, and I think it adds more pathos to the story if you know how it's going to end. It takes away some of the suspense, but allows you to enter into the emotional conflicts um, a lot with uh, a lot better if you actually know that this is this is the lamentable tragedy of of King Richard II. Um, 
And so along the way, readers and audience members, you have to take sides, right? Are you for Richard? Are you for Bolingbroke? And there's different reasons for each. And at, because it's Shakespeare, the great humanist, right? He, there's, no, there's no clear choice. You know how it's going to end, and you see along the way Richard's weakness as a king, his tyranny, uh, his uh, his sexual foibles, which are understated but definitely there, uh, and and all. But you also see this man who's trying his best to figure out how to be a king who has all of these enemies stacked against him and he doesn't know who his friends are and you feel the weight of that on his behalf and then switching over to Bolingbroke you see that along the way too he's got this good father a virtuous father at least in the play it was a little different in real life um uh, but he's treated, but John of Gaunt is treated very sympathetically by Shakespeare. And so, and Henry has to live up to his father. He believes he has a right and as would be a better king. Um, and, and so there's, and he's very noble and brave and sympathetic throughout the entire time. And yet he's scheming against the rightful king. So there's just this, this sense in this play and that you're, you're choosing sides while seeing all of the characters, not just the two in conflict over the throne, but all of them kind of in this full weight of their humanity, knowing that a lot of them are going to fall, lose power, die. Um, and and there's just this, this humanity to it, even though the stakes are so much higher than any of us will never know. There's this very great sense of... Um, contemplation and existential questions that come into play as well as the big political questions. The existential questions for me really show up in probably the most famous monologue uh, from this play, yeah, we'll get which there. falls into so act good. three. Yeah. I'm sure we'll play the audio of that. It, there's just this, there's a moment where Richard II kind of recognizes his own mortality to steal a line from Lear, the smell of his own mortality and is surrounded by his, um, deposed court. And he has kind of an ode to the frailty of, of human life. It's just a gorgeous melancholy monologue, but to hear it, you're going to have to wait listeners for two more acts. It's not going to happen until act three. Um, Heidi, let's talk about this opening scene. Mm-hmm. I, I, we said off the air that we really want to make sure in this episode that our listeners walk away from If they listen to this podcast and then turn on a film or watch a production of Richard II, we want them to know who the main players are and what the main dispute is over. Agreed. Let we need some start. historical background on this. Like yes, you can't, yes. this is one of those plays that I would never, ever recommend picking up and reading it. You do need some historical need background, not yeah. because, not because it's, you know, take some kind of smart intellectual to read the play. It's just a play about human power, but there's a lot of background that Shakespeare's audience would have known. It would have been just part, it would have been like, um, you know, somebody writing a play about the American revolution, right? When everyone, when Hamilton was the big rage, it didn't need like three generations of background. We could kind of pick up where the story began. Um, But uh, that's, that's not the case anymore, as you already pointed out. So can you give us some background and orient us to scene one? Yes. Think of scene one as a courtroom scene. That's essentially what it is. Mm, Agreed. Um, We've got three, uh, I'm going to say three and a half main players. 
Uh, those three players are, we've mentioned all three of them before, Thomas Mowbray, Bolingbroke, and Richard III. So, Can I just interrupt? Just it's worth please. saying that those are titles. So um, as you know, um, but for the audience's sake, um, Bolingbroke, he's Henry of Bolingbroke. It's not his name, it's his title. And that's how they refer yes. to each other at the time. Yes. Mowbray as well. Well, it is actually Mowbray's name. He's Duke of Norfolk. And this is confusing about the English names. They're like just as confusing as the Russian ones. But <laughs> Bolingbroke is Henry of Bolingbroke. It's Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk. And they're both in favor with King Richard yes. and disputing. So anyway, keep going. I'm sorry I interrupted. No, please. I'm glad you did. It, it, I think it's important to think of, um, for our readers to remember, this play is written about a time that is kind of at the conclusion of the medieval world. And so we've got a king, Richard II. Um, but I think it's, it's really important to remember that kind of feudal structure that Dukes and nobles and barons are kind of on that second tier of rulership, and they govern large territories. So it's I, I, maybe the best we can do for American listeners is the relationship between uh, the king and these two guys is the relationship between maybe the president and a governor of a state in the United States. It's not a perfect comparison, but I think it's a serviceable comparison. So a little bit about Henry of Bolingbroke, the second character in the dispute. Um, he will become, as we mentioned before, Henry IV, the father. He'll be the father of Henry V. You know Henry V of the great St. Crispin's Day speech of the play Henry V. Bolingbroke, Henry Bolingbroke in this play is, I see him as kind of the leader of the real politique. He is a pragmatic man. He is very popular. He is very powerful. And I think I think he is a little bit reluctant to embrace this notion that the king is on the throne because he was divinely appointed by God. I think there's evidence that Henry is pretty suspicious of this in scene uh, three when he is about to, like after he's about to do, have a duel with Mowbray. Um, he is occasionally referred to in this play as Harry, but most often as Bolingbroke. And he is the son of, let me get this straight. straight. John of Gaunt. Is John of Gaunt. Okay. John of Gaunt is the, I said there are like 3.5 like important characters in this scene. The 0.5 is John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt, um, the name is not because John of Gaunt is particularly skinny. It's because they think that he was, no, he was from Ghent, G-H-E-N-T, and the kind of English corruption of that became not John of Ghent, but John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt was a kind of like sometimes ally to Richard II, a sometimes not ally to Richard II. But at this point, he's kind of in the good graces of Richard II. And um, he's kind of on the sidelines hoping for peace between these two men. 
Mowbray and Bolingbroke. Okay, now, what are Mowbray and Bolingbroke? What are they arguing about? All right. Everything they're arguing about. They're accusing each other of like all sorts of crimes. But well, one kind in of particular key- here. Go yes, ahead. Yes, one yeah. in particular. Um, the murder of Gloucester. So don't think Gloucester from King Lear, famous character from King Lear, but a different Gloucester. Um, these two characters are saying, uh, you had a hand in the killing of Gloucester. No, you had a hand in the killing of Gloucester. And they go back and forth. And also, there's kind of a suggestion, and this is really important, from Bolingbroke that perhaps even the king, Richard II, had a hand in the killing of Gloucester. Right. Well, that's exactly right. And it's worthwhile digging into a little bit of what Gloucester represented to these men. So Gloucester, we we don't need to go too far back, but suffice it to say that Edward III, who is Richard's grandfather, He'd, he had many sons, uh, and one of them was named Edward. He was known as the Black Prince, extremely popular. He won a major battle in the Hundred, Year War, Hundred Years' War against France, uh, but he turned out to be not, not necessarily a great ruler, but definitely a great general in that particular case. And the, he was known as the Black Prince, and he died of a lingering illness before he w- was able to assume the throne. Uh, and he left a remaining and surviving son, who is Richard II. And Richard II assumed the throne at the age of 10 when his father, uh, after his father died, when his grandfather, Edward III, died. So uh, that's the chain of succession there. Edward III also had other sons, one of whom was John of Gaunt. And so Bolingbroke and Richard II are first cousins. And John of Gaunt is the oldest surviving son of Edward III. So in other words, John of Gaunt (laughs) is next in line for the throne if Richard were to die. And Bolingbroke as his son would be the next in line after that. So. So Bolingbroke's in direct line to the throne. And that's yes. very a very, very important and salient point in the play. Absolutely right. All right. Now, John of Gaunt also had another brother, Thomas of Woodstock, who became Duke of Gloucester. And he is who is called Gloucester in the play. And Gloucester, when the boy king, Richard II, was young, he assumed the throne at the age of 10. He was way too young to rule. And so he relied on his powerful uncles to help him rule for many, many years. At the time the play opens, he's 31 years old and has kind of just come into his own in his late 20s, just gotten the taste for power, just realized what it takes to rule. And he's trying to step into his own and cast off the influence of his powerful uncles, one of whom is Gloucester. Now, Gloucester was apparently a hothead. He was the youngest of the brothers uh, and probably the most gifted after Edward, his eldest brother, the Black prince who's now dead and um and he he had an eye to the throne himself uh and so he before the play opens a couple of years before the play opens has spearheaded a rebellion against his nephew whom he brought to the throne and helped to rule for many years this is the age of intrigue this is the age of courtiers uh you know trying to curry favor uh this is only it's less than 200 years after the Magna Carta. And so the uh, the nobles in England had a lot of power and a lot of money. And so the kings could not just subdue them. They had to curry their favor. And there was a lot of... Um, 
a lot of scheming, a lot of backstabbing. Just it's a really, really interesting, fascinating, violent time in English history. And we are in the midst of right in the middle of that in this play. Uh, so Gloucester has schemed against the, the, the king and almost won. He almost pulled it off. But Richard, in his late 20s, uh, was kind of figuring out how to do this. He was figuring out how to cast off the influence of the generation before him, his powerful uncles, and he amassed for himself his own uh, supporters who we get to meet in the play later on. Um, and he was able to subdue his uncle and send him off to house arrest in Calais in France under the care of Mowbray, mm-hmm. who is accused in this scene. Mm-hmm. So, Gloucester has died, suddenly died, probably murdered, um, right before the play opens. And Richard is in a tough spot. Uh, This is really important to understanding this scene. Richard's in a tough spot because it's very likely that he actually did scheme with Mowbray to kill Gloucester, to murder Gloucester while Gloucester was under house arrest. So Richard's in this tough spot. Here's what happened behind the scenes, and this is in the historical record, although it's not in the play, but the Shakespeare's audience would have known this. Uh, Mowbray went to Bolingbroke as an ally and told Bolingbroke, hey, Gloucester's dead, and the king told me to do it. So Bolingbroke... He was trying to recruit Bolingbroke as his ally because they're both under the favor of the king. So he's going to him to try to create an alliance with Bolingbroke to take down the king and offer Bolingbroke's throne, probably. That's probably what's going on. But Bolingbroke double bluffed him. Right. So what Bolingbroke does is like, aha, okay, so you want me as an ally. Instead, I'll go sell you out to the king and tell him that you told me that and then get you kicked out and then I can assume more power. So this and now Richard has to walk very carefully around this because it's very likely he did actually get Mowbray to kill Gloucester and he doesn't want to get caught by the nobles and give them more food to overthrow him. So there's this three way delicate balance that's happening in this scene that it comes across, you can read it at face value if you want to. It's way less interesting, but you can read it as face value as these two, you know, noble knights who have the of, of medieval lore who are trying to defend their honor. But that's not actually what's going on. Uh, and you could read the king as, you know, really trying to serve the cause of justice, but that's also not really going on. So there's these multiple layers of intrigue uh, that are taking place within this scene. The Shakespearean audience would have been aware of that. They would have already taken sides. And then Shakespeare does these subtle things in the scene to bring that to the forefront so that we as the audience can participate in the intrigue and the drama of it. I mentioned earlier that maybe the best comparison of the relationship between the king and the two men who are in dispute, Mowbray and uh, Bolingbroke, is president to governors. But I want to add another layer to that and say, but also... If through, the king was the supreme law, that'd be true. Anyway, yes. yeah. <laughs> but I also want to say, mixed into that relationship of like president to governors is everybody's a cousin or an uncle of everybody else. That's right. So the stakes are even more, the kind of like interpersonal tension is even more ripping because of all of that, all the family dynamics that are kind of bound up in this opening scene. Um. Heidi, I want to introduce a th- another character 
but I want to place this character. This character does not actually appear in the play. Uh, he's, I think the best way to think of him is a philosopher. And I think Machiavelli is a name that probably classically trained people will know. Uh, the author of The Prince. He's an Italian court minister advisor uh, who publishes The Prince in about 1500. So um, The Prince is this kind of handbook. It's a handbook for those in power, and it's all about how do you keep power? How do you really keep power? And so The Prince, Machiavelli's The Prince, is, is kind of casting a jaundiced eye toward this view that kings and princes and um, barons are positioned where they are because God is sort of like, um, has placed them there and they have, a, they have royal blood, actually kind of semi-divine blood running through their brains, through their brains, through their, through their veins. Um, Machiavelli is really suspicious of this notion. I think, as I mentioned earlier, Bolingbroke is going to be very suspicion, suspicious of this notion. And I think that is kind of, I, I, I think thinking about Machiavelli is kind of uh, our stage manager. He's kind of whispering in the ear of some of our characters when they're off stage. Look, do you really want to get power? Do you really want to keep power? Then you've got to act this way. Mm. You've got to actually like, be as subtle as a serpent if you're actually going to keep power or get your power. Um, Shakespeare read Machiavelli as best we can tell. He refers to Machiavelli in, I believe it's Henry VII. I can change colors with the chameleon, shapes with Proteus, and set the murderous Machiavelli to school. That's one of the lines from, I think it's uh, Henry VII. So, Set the murderous Machiavelli to school. Shakespeare's clearly familiar with the ideas behind uh, Machiavelli's, Machiavelli's The Prince. And I think that theme, that kind of realpolitik theme of what does it actually take to hold power and to get power is going to show up repeatedly in this play. So in reading this play, I think your homework as a teacher is to do a couple things. Um, first, really get across to your student what life was like when you believed that your king was divinely appointed by God. This is a hard thing to imagine because we actually kind of like have, when we talk about our politicians, we talk about them with kind of like a perpetual level of disgust. We're just, you know, oh my gosh, public servant, impossible. They're all politicians. They're all working the crowd. They're all buying media and speaking lies. You know, we talk about our politicians in the exact opposite way that an Englishman would talk about his divine ruler. Mm -hmm. So it's important for this play to like remember with your students that different kind of vision of what it means to be the head of a state, a Mm -hmm. king. Yes, it's true. They, I mean, they really did. The idea of the divine right of kings took, I mean, took root in England for sure. It was not as permissive of the exercise of power as it ended up being in 
France, for example, or Spain, uh, when the the rulers, I mean, wielded iron fists, you know, with the just like Pharaoh in Egypt or something. There's something about English politics, to your point, that always kind of lent itself to deposition, to um, uh, to struggles of power, and the question of merit, the question of I deserve it more than him, and so I should be able and ought to be able to take it, which is what we see in this particular play. Yes. Um, and which all of it then comes down in a Shakespeare, I think, so masterfully shows in this particular tetralogy uh, that it is not due to the uh, that the ambition plays such a role in uh, the rise and the fall of kings. Because um, we start with Richard and we end with Henry V, the glorious monarch, right? The, the, the high point of all of British monarchy. monarchy. Yes. And yet yes. he's tormented. Henry V is so tormented by his father's actions in deposing Richard. And he's, um, and, and there's, there is just this constant kind of sense of, 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 contemplation and existential crisis in all of the kings uh, and yet their their ambition that spurs them on and the things that they tell themselves in order to hold on to power it's not clear in my opinion whether and we can talk about this when we get there it's not clear to me whether or not Richard really believes in the divine right of kings mm-hmm. or whether he is claiming it in a Machiavellian attempt to hold on to his power yeah. Yeah, and I think that's true for Bolingbroke too. Is that you? You don't know. Does he really believe he'd be a better king, or does he just want to be king? Yeah, there's there's just such a question of that when in in throughout this tetralogy, and I just find it just so compelling to read and to think about. At the conclusion of scene one, we get a decision from Richard II who's kind of charged with adjudicating between these two guys, Mowbray and Bolingbroke. And he says, okay, have it your way. Let's have a duel. So we're set up for a kind of armed showdown in scene three. But before we get to scene three, scene two, which is this kind of, this very intimate little scene between two people um, after you have this big court scene and all these courtiers and trumpet blasts and the regal trappings of state in scene one, now scene two, two people, John of Gaunt and the Duchess of Gloucester. So this is the widow of the murdered Thomas of Gloucester. She's also the sister-in-law to John of Gaunt uh, and the Duke of the Duke of York. So she kind of steps forward after Richard has stated, okay, we're going to have a duel. We're going to settle this the old fashioned way. We're going to duke it out. Uh, she steps forward to speak to John of Gaunt and Heidi, I've got a little audio that I'd like to play um, right here of her appealing to John of Gaunt to take revenge on her deceased husband, Gloucester. Finds brotherhood in thee no sharpest fur. Hath love in thine old blood no living fire? Edward's seven sons, whereof thyself art one, were as seven vials of his sacred blood, or seven fair branches springing from one root. Some of those seven are dried, 
by nature's course. Some of those branches by the destinies cut. But Thomas, my dear Lord, my life, my cluster, one vial full of Edward's sacred blood, one flourishing branch of his most royal root is cracked. And all the precious liquor spilt is hacked down, and his summer leaves all faded by envy's hand and murder's bloody axe. Ah, gaunt, his blood was thine. That bed, that womb, that metal, that self-mold that fashioned thee made him a man. And though thou livest and breathest, yet art thou slain in him. Thou dost consent, in some large measure, to thy father's death, in that thou seest thy wretched brother die, who was the model of thy father's life. Call it not patience, gaunt. It is despair. In suffering thus thy brother to be slaughtered, thou showest the naked pathway to thy life, teaching stern murder how to butcher thee. That which in mean men we entitle patience is pale, cold cowardice in noble breasts. What shall I say to safeguard thine own life? The best way is to venge my Gloucester's death. God's is the quarrel. The God's substitute, his deputy anointed in his sight, hath caused his death. The which if wrongfully let heaven revenge, for I may never lift an angry arm against his minister. That was uh, the Duchess pleading for John of Gaunt to avenge the Duchess's deceased husband, Gloucester, by envy's hand and murder's bloody axe. Ah, Gaunt, his blood was thine. Um, it's a wonderful appeal. And John of Gaunt, his reply, I think, is fascinating, Heidi. It is clothed in an allusion to letting God direct the traffic of history. God's is the quarrel. For God's substitute, his deputy anointed in his sight, hath caused his death, the which, if wrongfully, let heaven revenge, for I may never lift an angry arm against his minister, his minister being Richard III. Second. What do you think of, I'm sorry, Richard, that's the second time I've done it. Richard II. What do you think of um, John of Gaunt? What do, we, what do we think about him as a character? Yeah, um, that's a great question, Tim. A couple of things. One, he's 
portrayed extremely favorably in the play. He's portrayed as like the great statesman um, and this and 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 a noble character who really sees uh, England and loves the land and believes in the intervention of God and the divine right of kings. Um, and that's a major cornerstone of his character and of this play. Um, and it would definitely be a very different play without, without John of Gaunt. To your point, he's kind of the counterpoint to the Machiavellian scheming yes. of the other characters. Yes. And is represented in this elder statesman from a previous generation. Um, and that's important because that's also a counterpoint then to Gloucester uh, for being a uh, uh, rising up against the king, John of Gaunt supports him, even though he doesn't believe in him, and even though he banishes his son. Um, but John of Gaunt just always does the right thing. And this is, I mean, he's so great in the play. It's kind of sad to say this was nothing like his character in real life. Of course, he's a real historical figure, and he was he was fine. He was mediocre. He was he failed at politics, he failed at war in real life. He was really good at making money. He married rich wives. Um, he was really the father. I mean, there's he just but Shakespeare needed a really strong character and he picked John of Gaunt, which was a great decision, I think, um, especially because he's Bolingbroke's father. Um it's also, I think, worth saying about John of Gaunt that he is that he has a lot of wealth, and that becomes extremely important in Act Two. And we actually, we see the beginning and the seeds of this in um, at the in the very last scene. Uh, that's actually really important to the plot. It doesn't have the grandeur and the appeal of Scene One and Scene Three, uh, but. Scene four is really important, and it's Richard scheming with these other young men uh, to take money from the mm-hmm. nobles, particularly John of Gaunt, his uncle, so that he can finance a war in Ireland. Um, and and that that kind of sets the stage for the future as well. Let's go to scene three. What's the resolution? We we it's it's a funny scene because we see it. We see Bolingbroke. We see. Um, him probably dressed, ready to go to war in front of us on stage with Thomas Mowbray. What's the solution uh, to this little showdown, Heidi? Yeah, um, in Act or, yeah, Act One, Scene Three, uh, these two men, Mowbray and uh, and Bolingbroke, they come prepared to battle it out right this is this is chivalry they're coming to the lists they're going to um they're going to shed their blood for their honor uh and again you can read this at face value and it's perfectly fine play but if you look under the surface to what they're actually defending it becomes a lot more interesting um they're they're Bolingbroke is attempting to unseat a rival for power uh, and Richard, it appears, would like nothing better to see these two disappear at this point, right? He needs Mowbray out of the way because Mowbray knows that Mowbray and can talk at any time that that Richard has been a part of Gloucester's murder, which would weaken his throne. Uh, so he needs him gone. 
and he can't risk him killing Bolingbroke. And so he decides to banish them. He sends them away. Uh, Mowbray is banished for life. And he gives a very touching speech about uh, never being able to speak his own language again, uh, which is important because the master of language in the play by far is Richard. He's an extremely eloquent, eloquent speaker. And for him to rob somebody of speech is a, extremely symbolic of him as a tyrant. Um, and then also uh, he banishes Bolingbroke for six years. It's supposed to be 10. And then he takes four off the top out of honor and respect for his uncle, John of Gaunt. And then John of Gaunt once again shows his medal uh, and his, his honor by submitting to the will of the king and encouraging his son to do so in sending his son away. Um, after, and that to your point or about the earlier scene too, um, in which uh, Gloucester's widow wants John of Gaunt to scheme against the king. And then they make another reference to no that the king has murdered Gloucester, who's, of course, John of Gaunt's brother, his younger brother, his little brother, you know, his baby brother. Um, and he says, he essentially says, I know, but God has put him in place there. So again, we have more evidence of his nobility, um, his submission to authority, his understanding of his place in the hierarchy in spite of his own personal feelings. Which brings us, Heidi, to uh, our main character. We've talked about mm. Bolingbroke, John of Gaunt, the Duchess, Mowbray. Hmm. What do we think about Richard II? I want you to answer this one. I've done a lot of talking. <laughs> I saw there's a great uh, theatrical rendition that I'm going to put up on the Facebook page, the Close Reads Discussion Group Facebook page, uh, starring David Tennant, who a lot of our listeners will know and their kids will know as one of the more well-known Doctor Who characters. Um, David Tennant is a wonderful Shakespearean actor. And he plays Richard II, and he is magnificent. The opening scene, Heidi, in this production, where Richard II, played by David Tennant, kind of adjudicating or umpiring between Mowbray and Bolingbroke, for me, it felt like you've got an army ranger and a green beret who are ready to just tear each other's heads off and to make the peace. Richard II re reminds me of someone like maybe Elton John. <laughs> he's, he's, um, he's fey. He's flamboyant. He is um, very articulate. And in, same, in, in some ways, it just seems, it's such a strange juxtaposition to see these two men of arms and kind of, and Elton John kind of pleading for the peace between them. It's a really great juxtaposition. So, so the costumer in this production uh, has David Tennant wearing these kind of shimmering gowns and his hair is long and luxurious and wavy. And he's a little bit effeminate in places. And I think it's a great choice for the actor to make. It's, there's, a, there's a kind of, it's strange because we'll see Richard II is, goes to war and he's successful at war. But there's also something about him that is, um, I'm not sure how to describe it. Uh, he's misplaced in the world of medieval men. He's a, he's a different 
and I think Faye is the best way to describe him. Yeah. And if you're talking about him as Elton John, I think it's a fitting comparison, but you have to think of it as like young, handsome Elton John in the early 80s. Yes. Like, yes, yes, he's yes, not yeah, an right. old guy. Like he's 31 years old. He's young. Uh, he's just understanding Vitality. what it means to have power. He's extremely yes. charming. He's a master of language. Uh, and he's, um, it's, it's really clear in the play Uh, And it just depends on the performance. Like I said, I've never seen a live performance of this. I highly recommend the Hollow Crown performance of it on BBC. It's so, it's just excellent. Um, And, but it does portray Richard relatively um, uh, positively and it plays up something in the historical record and something that Shakespeare hints at, which is that he had, uh, he had no successors. Um, He, he seems to have been married to, he had a first wife who died at 28 of the plague because this is right during the time of the plague. Um, and so people are dying all over the place. Um, but he did have a wife that he seems to have loved. And then there's a lot of evidence that he had homosexual relationships with his nobles. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And as particularly, is it, how do you even say that? Because I meant to look it up. Is it Almeral? I don't even know. I know. I saw it on the page and I heard it a couple times. I was like, I'm going to let Heidi uh, pronounce that well, one for me. That's, see, I'm so bad at pronouncing things. <laughs> and you're the, you're the Almeral. Al, Al, I'm not. Albemarle is the full name. And it's, this is a shortened version of him. He was the Earl of Albemarle. Um, and he uh, is, is most performances. <laughs> I could make it really clear in the performance in their body language and in some of their words to each other that they're lovers. Um, and yeah. Amaral becomes this gauntlet um, throughout the play of him, of, um, you know, Bolingbroke mates calls him a dainty lad and uses some, uses some language that's, that, that's very clear that he knows about his relationship with Richard um, and is disgusted by it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we see that in poignant relief later on in the play for sure. Um, And then you see already this, like in scene four, this uh, strong bond between Richard and Amaral. And that's why they were lovers. And so um, there's a lot about Richard's, to your point, it's he's an extremely complex character. And there's this humanity and this desire for uh, human connection without being able to know who he can trust. Um, And that, and and what's in, I'm always intrigued by, and I'm curious what you think about this, Tim. You can tell me your thoughts on this. Why not just banish yeah. them in scene one? Why wait and put on the lists and banish them then? It's such a curious. It's such a curious decision. Yeah, and that's really true in history too. Shakespeare got it right. He really did this. So, I mean, what is your what is, what is your interpretation of that action? My interpretation is not like particularly compelling. (laughs) My interpretation was, um, okay, he's thinking first, let me buy some time in the opening scene. Let me buy some time so I can kind of step back and figure out what, how exactly to handle this scenario. So when he says, yeah, let's have a duel. Let's have a duel. Show up in your battle gear. We'll get it done. Somebody's going to be the winner. I wonder if Richard II is actually like just kind of bargaining for a little bit more time to think about what he's going to do. Then, mm-hmm. before scene three, he's kind of thought about what he wants to do, and he's like, "All right, 
If one of these guys kills the other one, I've eliminated one of my two problems, but I've created another problem. That other problem is, let's imagine that Bolingbroke is the winner. He's the superior soldier. He defeats Mowbray. Well, then, Bolingbroke, who's already kind of a threat to my rule, has now got the pride of having um, gotten rid of, in a tremendously bloody, um, braggable way, uh, one of his rivals. And that's going to look really good to all of the other kind of like second tier rulers. And if he's going to gather power, that's a foothold for him that he can kind of crow about having done uh, done away with Mowbray. Mm-hmm. So I think Richard II is going to say he makes a decision to kind of do this asymmetrical banishment. It's a way of diffusing the potential of one of his rivals gathering strength, um, sends them both away, kind of clears the deck for a little while. But of course, we're going to find out pretty soon, aren't we, Heidi, mm-hmm. that um, Bolingbroke is not exactly going to just be peaceful about his banishment. Right. Yes. Agreed. When I, when I teach this play, I do yeah. my, my go-to strategy for teaching this first act is we read, all of the students read act one, like, you know, assign parts to it, like reader's theater style, and then ask them their opinion about it. Who's no, like what, who's noble in this act, you know, or in this scene, um, side are you on blah, blah, blah. But I don't give them any background. I just have them read the scene as it is. And then after they read it, then I give them all the background that I already talked about here that you and I discussed. And I say, now that you have this, what do you think now? Who's noble now? Do the students change? Yeah. The, do they like oh, yeah. shift? I always, I yeah. mean, this is one of my, this is, this is a go-to teaching strategy for me with the Iliad as well. And, um, and lots of texts that kind of need that historical background to kind of get to the meat of it, but you can still have an opinion without it. You know what I mean? Um, yes. So read it face value and then here's some information and then interpret it again with that and with, with what you have now. And that leads to a lot of rich conversations um, about that. I think gets to the heart of the play, even from the beginning, from, from scene one. Um, And then when I get to this scene, I'll often uh, ask the question, why does the King wait here? Why not just do this? And, and really what you come down to is to your point, he has to do something um, at, and so he either was too weak to know what he was going to do when it was first brought to his uh-huh. attention. That's another That's interpretation. Inter- yes. He's just too weak. Yeah. He just didn't know, right? And he was like, I don't know what to do about these guys. I'll let him fight it out. And then, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then at, it's, you know, it's interesting from the historical record, it was eight months until St. Lambert's Day. No kidding. Yeah. So it was eight months. It's like 15 minutes in the play, right? Exactly. Yes. Which Shakespeare yeah. to condense that timeline. But, uh, it was, it was a long time, and we know that he waited. So looking at him through here, it's either because he's such a weak king or, or and I think this is a more interesting interpretation, yeah, yeah. or he's so dramatic that he wants to do it oh. on this big public stage, right? Oh. And, and I find that pretty compelling to get to, to, get to the heart of Richard. 
Like, yes. why would why would a king who has and and there's so many words that are used in the Shakespeare's play to describe him. There's there's sun and light. Um, you know when. Uh, when Mowbray is banished, he talks a lot about being gone from the, he gives this little speech and it's like being gone from under the sun of England and under this, the, the, the light of my King and my Lord and going out into endless night. Um, mm. And, and like the imagery of the sun is used so much to describe Richard. And I think mm. that that to your point with your question of what is Richard like, I think this scene is so compelling to talk about his like kind of, uh, is it either it's either a strategic need to be on the stage because he has to establish himself or else it's yes. like a pathological narcissistic need to be on the stage in order to be seen yes. and beloved by his subjects and to display his power. And it could be a little bit of both, but it's just, there's so many interesting interpretations of his character yeah. and Shakespeare kind of lets us sort through it on our own. Yeah. 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 It could be a photo op as a way of thinking about it in contemporary yeah. terms. Like yeah, if, if exactly. he actually like delayed it so he can get some good press out of it, it's a great photo op for him. Heidi, one of the reasons that you're such a good teacher is that um, when you're describing how you get your students into the play, I love that you don't start with giving them all the history and mm -hmm. then doing the play, but you do the play, you kind of throw them in the water and then you kind of like back them up once the action is already taking place within the student. You know, they're aligning themselves behind Bolingbroke or Richard II. Um, then you give them more history. I just think that is such a great teaching principle. And it is not the norm. I think mm -hmm. the norm is, let me give you all of the historical prologue. And then we're going to kind of like dive into the play a little bit. Um, part of the reason I like to start the show with audio clips is that it's really nice, I think, to kind of attune our listeners toward Shakespeare's language um, and kind of get them in the action of hearing the action of the play and then kind of stepping back and providing a little bit more historical context. Um, that being said, next episode, Act 2, we're probably going to do a little bit more history um, of what preceded Richard II than we would ordinarily do because, as we've discussed in this episode, there's just a lot of English history that's kind of like wrapped up in this teeny little package called Act One, Scene One, that I think it's just going to be fun to kind of unpack um, during the next, the next episode. How does, that, how does that sound to you? I think that sounds great. I'm excited about it. It does add a depth to the play. Um, I just think that there's in teaching the play to your point, and thank you for thank you for affirming this. Uh, to your point, I think that there's ways to communicate that to the students without just unloading it in lecture form, but ways of allowing the historical context to interpret the play um, and to add depth to it without then taking away the student's ability to feel like they can think through the play on their own, right? And nobody likes to be lectured exactly. at. So Exactly. I think a creative way right. to, I think, I think there's lots of creative ways to kind of work this, that, that context into the way that you teach it um, without it just being talking at you with all these dates and, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just think that's a great teaching principle. Get the students invested first, then kind of supply them with more historical context. So 
their investment begins to take nuance and crisper direction. And it's just a great mm-hmm. teaching principle. Okay, Heidi, let's, um, let's just regather in one week and let's talk about Act 2 of Richard 2. For those of you who are listening and who want to participate, there's all sorts of ways via the interwebs that you can get in touch with us. I already mentioned the Close Reads Facebook page. Find Close Reads on Instagram. Uh, I don't, are we Twittered up, Heidi? I don't think that we tweet. tweet. Okay. I don't think tweet? we tweet. Don't look for it Because it's not to Twitter, there. right? Oh. Like the verb of Twittering or the verb of Twitter is not Twittering, it's tweeting. I think, I think. it's tweeting. This is yeah. how ignorant I am about, I just cannot do that platform. I cannot do that platform. I can't platform. either. I don't even know what's going on. And, and I know I sound like my 41 years right now, but it's true. I'm the same. I get on there and I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. And everybody seems so grumpy. I, yeah, I know. So I know. anyway, tweeting. I know. That's the reason I'm not on. It's yeah. not just because I'm older. It's because everyone is so grumpy on the, in the Twitter sphere. So that's that's like my uh, excuse for my age. Maybe I'm justifying like being old. So come find us on Facebook, pay attention to us on Instagram, and we'll provide in the next episode all sorts of other ways that you can get involved with us. Heidi, thanks for a great episode. And thanks listeners for tuning in and tune in in one week for our next episode, which will be Richard II, Act Two. Until then, everyone, thanks for joining us and... Happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.